At the entrance to Griffith Park off Los Feliz Boulevard in Los Angeles stands a 14-foot-tall bronze statue of a proud, portly Victorian gentleman. He is the celebrated Griffith J. Griffith, who donated 3,015 acres of the former Rancho Los Feliz to Los Angeles in 1896. He donated the land to be used specifically as a park for the plain people of the city. His face, decidedly noble and assured, lords over his princely gift to the city. And it must be said, at 4,310 acres, and traced with hiking trails throughout, plus an outdoor theater, plus an observatory, this stretch of green in the heart of Los Angeles is undoubtedly one of L.A.'s greatest public resources. While portraits and photos of Griffith are plentiful, there are hardly any in existence of his wife, Tina, for whom a great part of his fortune and prestige sprang, and none after the year of 1903. Because that year, Griffith J. Griffith shot his wife in the face, permanently disfiguring her. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly L.A. This very peculiar Los Angeles tragedy began half a world away. According to Paul McClure, the author of A Benefactor's Tragedy, starring Griffith J. Griffith, Griffith Jenkins Griffith, yes, again, his name was Griffith Jenkins Griffith, and he was born in South Wales on January 4, 1850, the son of a farmer who also worked in the nearby mines. The eldest of a large, impoverished brood, the young Griffith was taken to America by an uncle when he was still a child. The ambitious, brash young man was educated in Pennsylvania and then went into the newspaper business. The trade brought him to San Francisco in the 1870s, where he worked the mining beat for the Alta California, a popular Wild West newspaper. Becoming an expert on Western mines, he made his probably much exaggerated fortune as a consultant to mine owners. In 1882, Griffith, drawn to the wide open opportunities of Boomtown Los Angeles, moved to the City of Angels permanently. In December of that same year, he bought the sprawling rural Rancho Los Feliz, long said to be cursed, from local businessman Thomas Bell. The curse of Los Feliz was said to have been placed on the rancho by Petronilla, a member of the Feliz family who had had the ranch stolen from her by a clever lawyer. Griffith quickly became a well-known new figure in Los Angeles, lording over his mountainous rancho astride his horse, overseeing numerous improvements. Griffith attempted to make the rancho, then outside the city limits, into a prosperous ranching operation. According to McClure, 
he would eventually build a rickety railway to his land and have 6,000 sheep, 50 horses, and 150 dairy cows on the rancho. Were you to make a pin portrait of him, you would see a man of somewhat average height in the prime of life, of well-knit, muscular frame, the Los Angeles Times enthused of Griffith. Altogether a powerfully built man, keen, dark eyes that rest on you, but with such an open, frank look as to inspire confidence, while the clear, ringing laugh, which invariably accompanies the story he is telling, proclaims a man who enjoys every moment of his existence. But Griffith also annoyed many people by forcing himself into Southern California civic life. Wags called him not only a roly-poly, pompous little fellow with an exaggerated strut like a turkey gobbler, but also an egomaniac and a braggart. This did not stop the wealthy Louis Mesmer, owner of a large furniture store on Main Street in downtown, from introducing Griffith to his daughter, Tina. The Mesmers were descendants of the legendary Verdugo family, and therefore aristocracy in rough-and-tumble Los Angeles. Tina and her sister, Lucy, were also the heiresses to a quarter-million-dollar fortune, left to them by family friend Andre Briswalter, who, according to the L.A. Times, had started out peddling vegetables door-to-door and ended up owning thousands of acres of L.A., including most of Playa del Rey. Believing Tina to be the sole heir to the Briswalter fortune, Griffith began courting her. They were soon engaged, and announcements for the wedding appeared in all of the local papers. However, ten days before the wedding, Griffith discovered that Tina was only co-heir to the Briswalter fortune and would only receive half the money. He wrote his betrothed a brutal letter, breaking off the engagement. Her deeply Catholic family was appalled and begged Griffith not to disgrace their daughter this way. He agreed to go through with the marriage, but only on the condition that Tina inherited the entire fortune and that it be transferred into his name. Griffith claimed that this was not to steal the money, but to ensure that, according to the LA Times, after marriage there would be no interference with his wife's money on the part of her family. Not surprisingly, After this episode, the Mesmer family would forever be wary of Griffith J. Griffith. On January 27, 1887, he and Tina were married in a society wedding, the likes of which Backwater L.A. had rarely seen. By this marriage, two immense estates were united, the Los Angeles Times reported. The large possessions of Griffith J. Griffith and the vast amounts of Los Angeles property owned by the charming bride, Miss Mary Agnes Christina Mesmer, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Louis Mesmer, familiarly known among her most intimate society friends as Tina. According to the Times, it was a match made in society heaven. The bride has been educated in a superior manner, as befits the owner of so vast an estate. Her singing and playing are exceptionally fine and her taste in flowers is remarkable, as is well illustrated in her mother's garden. She can speak four languages, while the happy bridegroom can converse in three, including Welsh. But the wedding was not all love and sunshine. 
In reality, it was about cold, hard cash, as the L.A. Times reported years later. At the wedding breakfast that day, even before guests had completed their meal, Griffith rose and excused himself, saying that he must go and bid goodbye to several friends before embarking on the honeymoon trip. A subsequent examination of courthouse records showed that instead of bidding adieus, Griffith had slipped across the street to the courthouse, and within six minutes of leaving the wedding breakfast, he caused the 250000 to be transferred from the name of Mary Mesmer to that of her brother Tony Mesmer, and from the name of Tony Mesmer to the name of Griffith J. Griffith. Then he returned to the bride and the wedding party. A year after the wedding, Tina gave birth to the couple's only child, a son named Vandell, often called Van. Now backed by his wife's enormous wealth, Griffith continued his ascent into L.A. society, making many enemies along the way. In October 1891, Griffith accompanied Tina and her sister in a carriage. They went to the old Catholic cemetery on Buena Vista Street. The women had intended to decorate the grave of their mother, who had died only months before. Suddenly, a distressed man appeared in a carriage and shot at Griffith from a gun loaded with buckshot. Griffith was hit in the head and took off running. Tina, according to the Times, yelled after him from her carriage. I know who it was, Papa. The man who had shot Griffith was an Englishman named Frank Burkett. He had leased land from Griffith to open an ostrich farm on the Los Feliz Rancho. The farm had been a dismal failure, and Burkett had fallen behind on his rent. Believing Griffith was attempting to ruin him, he had grown increasingly deranged and was suspected of setting his own house on fire. But the tragedy would not end there. As soon as Burkett fired the last shot, he whipped up his horse and started for the bridge, the LA Times reported. He had only gone a few feet when he must have determined to take his own life, for he drew a pistol from his pocket, and placing the muzzle against his head just back of his right ear, he pulled the trigger. The bullet literally tore the back part of his head all to pieces, and brains and blood covered the side of the buggy and the street. Griffith was only minimally injured and soon returned to his old bombastic self. During the 1890s, he was at his peak, a member of the prestigious Jonathan Club, a pioneering member of the Fruit Growing Association of Los Angeles, the Merchants and Manufacturers Associations, the Citizens and Free Harbor Leagues, and he was also the only honorary member of the Chamber of Commerce. In 1896, his legend was cemented when he offered to donate 3,015 acres of the sprawling Feliz Rancho to the city for use as a public park. Though his enemies, including the writer Horace Bell, claimed he only donated the land as a tax scheme because he had failed as a ranch owner, this princely gift was lauded by city leaders. He formally bequeathed the land to the mayor in December 1896, after making a brief address to the city council.
Recognizing the duty which one who has acquired some little wealth owes to the community in which he prospered, and desiring to aid the advancement and happiness of the city that has been for so long and always will be my home, I am impelled to make an offer, the acceptance of which by yourselves, acting for the people, I believe will be a source of enjoyment and pride to my fellows, and add charm to our beloved city. Realizing that public parks are the most desirable feature of all cities which have them, and that they lend an attractiveness and beauty that no other adjunct can, I hereby propose to present the city of Los Angeles as a Christmas gift, a public park of about 3,000 acres of land. The gift garnered Griffith all the prestige he had ever hoped for. Griffith J. Griffith, the Los Angeles Times lauded in 1898. Though not born in America, he nevertheless is thoroughly imbued with the liberal spirit which makes up the ideal American citizen. His long residence upon the Pacific coast has made him a thorough Westerner in manner and feeling. His congeniality is his most conspicuous characteristic. His gift to Los Angeles is peculiarly fitting, he having spent the great part of his successful business career in this city, and having been closely identified with its growth and development for many years. Now known as a builder of cities, Griffith was officially on the A-list of L.A. society. He is fond of all outdoor amusements, a good theater-goer, and first nights of any prominent attractions at the opera or playhouse are certain to find Mr. and Mrs. Griffith in their places as the curtain rises, the Times observed. He could also often be found on his old rancho, now known as Griffith Park. But not everyone was pleased with Griffith's rise. Now styling himself Colonel, for no particular reason, Local wits begin referring to him as the Prince of Wales. That's W-H-A-L-E-S. Tina claimed that Griffith, a teetotaler in public, was actually a nail-biter and a sneak-drinker, who was usually drunk. He never left the house without taking a drink, she later testified, according to the Times, and he never came into the house without taking one, and of course, I don't know how many he took in between. The marriage began to fall apart as Griffith became increasingly unstable and suspicious. However, he could still be counted on to perform in public. In April 1903, the Times reported that he played Toastmaster at a party at the Hollywood Hotel in the then dry rural paradise of Hollywood. His speech left people in stitches with his funny remarks about the nature of women. When we look at women in the abstract, or in the concrete, or even when we regard her in all the glory of an Easter transformation, what thoughts crowd upon our mind? Human intelligence cannot estimate what we owe to women. It has been said that she sews on our buttons, but the laundryman does that now. She ropes us in at church fairs, but then we are willing a sacrifice. She confides in us when she's figuring for a new dress. She gives us good advice, <laughs> and plenty of it. She gives us a piece of her mind sometimes, and sometimes all of it. Wheresoever you place a woman, in whatever position or estate, she is an ornament to the place she occupies, and a treasure to the world. Only a month later, 
Griffith would threaten Tina with a gun for the first time. I'd threaten to leave, she testified later, according to the Times. And I think he realized that I would not stand it much longer. It had certainly come to the question. He is very proud and did not want the public to know. Despite the strained, abusive marriage, during the summer of 1903, Griffith, Tina, and Van all stayed together in the presidential suite of the Grand Hotel Arcadia in Santa Monica. Griffith had believed all summer that someone was trying to poison him. He would constantly make servers switch out his soup in the Arcadia dining room. On the evening of Friday, September 4th, Tina was packing, preparing for their trip back to Los Angeles. When Griffith entered the room, he was holding a gun. In his other hand was a prayer book. Would you swear on this prayer book the same as you would on a Bible? He asked. Griffith then told Tina to kneel and began peppering her with questions. Did you ever hear or know anything about Briswalter being poisoned? He asked. Have you been implicated with or do you know of anyone giving me poison? Tina later recalled what happened next as reported in the Times. His third question was, Have you always been faithful to your marriage vows? I said, As God is my judge, I have, and you know that I have. As I answered my last question, he shot me. I was on my knees, and I jumped up and rushed for the window. It was closed, but I managed to raise it and get out. I sprang out and fell to the roof below. According to McClure, the bullet entered her forehead, but miraculously split in two. One part of the bullet ranged upwards along the frontal bone of her forehead, and the other part of the bullet sped downward, tearing out her right eye. Miraculously, Tina lived and was quickly found by a couple in the suite below. As writer Adela Rogers St. John's would later say, Tina was the society wife who wouldn't die. Tina was rushed to the hospital, where she would stay for almost a month. Griffith was arrested three days later, in the middle of an epic bender. His trial for attempted murder that fall was the talk of Southern California. Griffith's lawyer, the brilliant, also alcoholic, Earl Rogers, claimed that his client had been seized by alcoholic insanity, and therefore was not responsible for his actions. On November 3, 1903, Tina now blind in one eye and horribly disfigured, appeared to testify. The L.A. Times reported breathlessly. An inner door of the courtroom opened, and a procession of handsomely dressed women swept in. Among them was a slight, girlish woman, heavily veiled and wearing black glasses. That was Mrs. Griffith. Her features could not be seen. Mrs. Griffith went at once to the witness stand and faced the staring crowd. Not a sign between her and her husband. She looked at him casually, as though he were someone she had never seen. Colonel Griffith leaned back in his chair with his chin propped up on his hand and listened almost without moving a muscle. After hours of brave, straightforward testimony, Tina fainted before coming back in the afternoon to endure further questioning. 
Griffith J. Griffith was sentenced to only two years in prison. During his time in jail at San Quentin, the once princely Griffith worked in the laundry. Tina was granted a divorce, cash, and custody of Anne. When Griffith got out of jail only 20 months later, Adela Rogers St. John's claimed he was humble, a changed man. After his release, Griffith became interested in prison reform and restoring his important name. After a visit to the Mount Wilson Observatory in 1908, he exclaimed, If all of mankind could look through that telescope, it would change the world. This led him to begin dreaming of an observatory at Griffith Park, of course, named after himself. Griffith was furious with the slow improvement at the park which bore his name. Little had been done to make the park accessible to the plain people he had so wanted to reach, and in 1910, he self-published Parks, Boulevards, and Playgrounds under the guise of the Prison Reform League Publishing Company. In it, he wrote... For the last 14 years, a majority of the Los Angeles City Council has claimed persistently that owing to lack of funds, the city could not afford to build a road to Griffith Park or take other steps that would make it accessible to the public. I had reasons, however, to expect that my donation would receive different treatment this year, and accordingly, I postponed the publication of this little book. But when the Budget Committee met July 29, 1910, the same plea was urged once more, and a park commissioner, who has been advocating the spending of $100,000 on Central Park, declared that rather than stint on the work there, he would cut out the $25,000 appropriation for Griffith Park. This little book is a strange mishmash of true philanthropical beliefs and whiny little grievances. Public parks are the safety valves of the city, he writes, quite so. They are the pleasure grounds of the people. Nothing conduces more to the public health, and money wisely spent on them is the best investment any city can make. The book includes paparazzi-like pictures of people hauling sand and gravel illegally out of Griffith Park, of private houses erected in its pastures, horses, sows, and mules illegally grazing, and even a private dairy. Under each photo is the same caption. Would such mistreatment induce others to make donations to the city? In 1912, the still wealthy Griffith offered the city money to build an observatory, and in 1913, he offered money for an outdoor theater. The city, wary of accepting any more gifts from an attempted murderer, declined his offer. However, after his death in July 1919 of liver disease, L.A. did accept the money Griffith had left in trust for both of these projects. And thus the flawed, complicated man is responsible for the construction of both the Griffith Observatory and Greek Theater. His portly ghost is said to haunt Griffith Park, forever checking on his many projects. And what of Tina? She lived in the shadows, a virtual recluse in her sister Lucy's household dying after a long life in 1948. She is buried discreetly in the Mesmer Crypt in East Los Angeles' Calvary Cemetery, a sprawling Catholic cemetery that is the eternal home of other victims of L.A.'s dark side. Her abuser is eternally across town, in the gaudy Hollywood forever, buried beneath a soaring granite monument which pierces the bright blue California sky. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Underbelly LA. This episode is based on an article I wrote that originally appeared on KCET. Check it out. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook. Just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Join us next week when we delve into more murder, mayhem, shade, and sunshine in the city of angels. A Table Cakes production.